0: This time, children may be dismissed to go to their class. As they're leaving, you can take your Bibles if you have not already turned there and turn to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. I just want to mention after the service, um, we mentioned this last week, but we will be um, dismissing. and then we'll be coming back in here just for a short uh, family chat. Um, we just want to go over um, some issues with you, and so I encourage you to uh, stay here for that. If you're a, a member or even a regular attender, I think it would be something important for you to hear. So if you could give us, I don't plan on being long with that, so please uh, stick around for that. Colossians chapter 1, as we look at the world around us, it does not take much attention to notice that Christians are under fire all around our world. Uh, you, you can read almost stories almost daily now about persecution against Christians in, in, in other parts of our world. And, and it's said that persecution against Christians is higher today than it's ever been. There's an organization called the the World Watch List. I don't know if you, any of you follow that. And the World Watch List, what it does is it compiles... Uh, stats dealing with persecution and, and specifically around the countries that are involved in that and, and it monitors the top 50 worst nations for persecution. Uh, they put together some interesting stats. They, uh, they said that one in nine Christians worldwide experience high levels of persecution, one in nine, ranging from extreme political pressure to wrongful imprisonment to death. One in nine Christians. In 2018, in the top 50 most persecuted nations, 4,136 Christians were killed for their faith. That's roughly 11 a day were killed for their faith. 2,625 Christians were arrested last year without trial and imprisoned for their faith. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the World Watch list, they, they monitor the top 50 most heinous nations when it comes to the area of persecution of Christians. Uh, it, interesting, in 2011, there were 11 nations on that list. They monitor them based on minor persecution, um, high persecution, and extreme persecution. In 2018, there were 11 nations listed in the top category of the st- extreme now, for a comparison, five years ago, there was only one listed as an extreme, that was North Korea, who's still listed on the top. Every month in 2018, 105 churches worldwide were attacked, burned, and heavily vandalized, or heavily vandalized. You say, why are you saying all this? Because what's interesting is our text today, Paul starts out with a very perplexing statement. He says in in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Why would he say that? As Americans, we tend to run from our sufferings. Why would he say that? and and i want to i want to go through a little journey through scripture of a number of different passages that talk about this same idea And I I had a list, uh, a long list of passages, and I had to narrow it down. Otherwise, we'd be here much longer. But I want you to see what the Bible has to say about this topic. Notice what it says in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus, when he was calling disciples, said this, If you are going to follow me, then what you need to do is put down yourself and take up your cross. Now again, I preached this passage not that long ago and when I preached it, I talked about this. The cross for us is this symbol of hope, right? I and mean, we think about the cross and we think that's what gave us our salvation. And so in many ways, the cross has become almost in some ways a positive thing for us as Christians. But for the people that Jesus was talking to when he said this, the cross was the worst possible thing they could think of. It was the most heinous uh, a method of torture in the world and what Jesus was saying was this take up your suffering and follow me 2nd sa- Timothy says this indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted do you desire to live godly if so, persecution is coming. Now, persecution can take many forms. It may be, as we mentioned, physical persecution. It may be oppression. It may be just severe trials that come as a result of your faith. But it's coming. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange has happened to you. If you're uh, insulted for the name of God, if you are mocked for the name of God, if you are put down because you follow God, you are blessed because the Spirit of God rests upon you. Suffering is coming. If you hadn't had it yet, it's coming if you continue to walk with God. Philippians says this, For it has been granted to you that, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Now, this is an interesting passage. Notice, notice what he's saying. It is granted to you. It is as if he is saying this. God gift-wrapped it for you. Oh, we, we shy away from that, don't we? But Paul is saying, God has gifted to you with a big giant bow that you will suffer if you follow him. It goes even further than that. Look at this last passage I want to look at in Acts. This is the, this is the apostles, and they, they, were, uh, they were preaching, and they got arrested, and they had to go before the council. And it says this, and they, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They counted it worthy. You might be thinking right now, Pastor Pete, don't tell people all these things or you will scare them off. Do you remember what Jesus did when he was preaching? He was going around and he was performing miracles and the crowd started to gather and they started to grow and they started to multiply. And, and, and it came to one uh, time when they were out in a field and they were hungry and Jesus then took those uh, five loaves and two fishes and he fed 5,000 men, women, and children. And then what happened after that? The Bible tells us, if you read the rest of that story, just in the next few events that happened, Jesus then began telling them, you know what's going to happen is, is the Son of Man is going to die. And they, these, these people who were following because of the awe and because of everything that was going on, suddenly it became very uh, disheartened with what, what Jesus was saying. At the end of the chapter that talks about the feeding the 5,000, there's an interesting phrase that says, uh, and, and most many... Left Jesus. See, when, when we look at this idea of suffering, we think, uh, "Oh God, uh, God, why would you cause us to suffer? And, and, and why, why is it that uh, that's in your word over and over again? Because God wants us to know that, that is, he is calling us to something that is hard. He doesn't want us to come in just because it seems easier, because uh, it seems like my life is going to get better. He is calling us to something great. So what I want to talk about in the next few moments is this call of service, this call of ministry. Now, here in this passage, it's talking about Paul and what he is doing, but I believe this extends to all of us as believers, this call of service. And so we see there, first of all, this call of service is great. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church god is summoning paul and god through paul god is god is summoning all of us with a very simple task but it is hard and the question is, will you join the Son of God by displaying the glory of God on a road to suffering for the furtherance of the gospel and for the building up of the church? Now some of you, it's, man, you hear that first part, will you join the Son of God in displaying the glory of God? Yes, but on the road to suffering, I don't know God. John Piper, a preacher, he says this in talking about uh, this idea of suffering for God. He says this, listen to this, he said, There is no other way the world is going to see the supreme glory of Christ except we break free from the Disneyland of America and begin to live lives of sacrifice that look to the world like our treasures in heaven and not on earth. But you know what? Our treasure is too often in heaven, and so because of that, we—I mean, too often on earth. And so because of that, we do not—we do not allow the world to see the supreme glory of Christ. And even in churches today, we—I've talked about this the last couple of weeks. But in churches today, there's something known as the prosperity gospel—that if I come to God and I follow God, my life will get easier, and somehow it'll get better. The prosperity gospel will not make anyone praise Christ. The prosperity gospel will cause us to praise prosperity. Of course I'll have Jesus if my life gets better. Of course I'll have Jesus if he gives me a a home and a car and a good family. But if if the payoff isn't good enough, then I don't want him. And that is not how we're going to win our community. That is not how we're going to win the world around us. That is not how you are going to win your neighbor. Because if you're trying to dress the best, if you're trying to drive the best, if you're trying to be the best, it's not going to produce any praise for for Christ. It's going to produce praise for yourself. I believe that God calls for another way. I heard a story about a, a monk uh, who, was, who was interviewed by an Italian, uh, Italian television station. Now, this monk was from an order that, that, for the most part, they were to remain totally silent, except for a few exceptions. They, they, they sang together, they would confess their sins together, but other than that, they weren't allowed to talk. Now this monk for whatever reason was granted the, the exception to do this interview and in this interview the t- television interviewer asked the monk a question. He said this, if you were to realize at the end of your life that atheism is true and there is no god, tell me, what if it happened that way, what would you do? Here's how the monk replied. Holiness, silence, sacrifice are beautiful in themselves even without the promise of reward. I still would have used my life well. Here's the thing. That's bogus. How do we know that? Because Paul uh, tells us that. Paul says something very different. Notice what, what Paul says in Corinthians. He says this, If in Christ we have hope in this life only. In other words, what Paul is saying is, if we get to the end of life and there's nothing else, if, if the atheists have it right, that life ends, I die, I cease to exist, boom, I'm gone if all I've done is live my life for Christ, you know what Paul says? Of all people, I am the most miserable. I'm the most to be pitied. You know, our life is not just about here. It's about eternity. Our life is not just about uh, acquiring what we can. It's about something more than that. And not only does Paul call for suffering in this passage, he says, I I rejoice in my suffering. But then he adds a very interesting comment at the end of verse 24 that I want you to look at. He says there, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. Now what does that mean? At first glance, it seems to state that, that Christ's work on the cross lacked or was somehow insufficient. And that can't be true. Because we know, the Bible tells us, that can't be true. That Christ's death on the cross is sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. It can't be true. So what does he mean by that? I think the context, you know, I want you to listen very carefully because this, is, this may be hard to grapple with a little bit, so I want you to hear what I'm saying. I think the context that, that we see this and the idea of suffering and doing the work of the ministry, I think when we look at that context, I think what we're seeing is that, uh, uh, that what Paul's suffering fills up Christ, not by adding anything to Christ's suffering or to its worth, but by extending them to people they were meant to bless. What is lacking in Christ's affliction in, in this passage is not that they were, they were deficient somehow in worth or merit, as though they couldn't sufficiently cover our sins. That's not what it's talking about. What is lacking is that the infinite value of Christ's suffering was not known to the world. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. You go to someone who has never been in church, And you begin to explain to them the death of Jesus Christ. They would probably say, here's an innocent guy who died that seems like such a waste. And what he's talking about here, Paul is saying, is is that I want to fill up. I want to connect the dots, in other words... From, for, for people in this world who do not see, he goes on to talk about this mystery, and there, there, there's this mystery that's hidden to people, and that is why did Christ have to suffer, and it's our responsibility to connect the dots, and God's intention is that this mystery be revealed, be extended to, to all people, so the afflictions are lacking in the sense that they're not seen, they're not known to the world. And so it's our responsibility to carry, as ministers of the word, to carry that, the sufferings of Christ to the world. That's our responsibility. We fill up what is lacking. Let me, let me give you an illustration of what I mean by this. There was a story told a number of years ago about a pastor, an evangelist in India. And he would travel around, and he didn't have a lot of money. In fact, uh, uh, the story was told that everywhere he went, he went barefoot because he didn't have the money to buy shoes. And so he would travel from village to village. He would spend hours traveling around, going from village to village, sharing the gospel. His hardships were many. His days were long. And after one particular uh, horrifically long day, he managed to come into a certain village. And, and at this point, this preacher was discouraged. He was, he, he, was just, he was downhearted big time. And he walked into this village and he tried to speak to them the gospel, but the entire town came out and drove him out of the village and told him never to return. So he went out to the edge of the village, dejected, defeated, and he lay down under a tree, and in exhaustion, he fell asleep. When he woke up, there was a crowd of people hovering around him. He was confused. He was worried. He was scared, and the whole entire town was there, gathering, watching him sleep. And when he woke up, he begged for them, or they begged for him to speak. The head man of the village came forward and he said, I, I want to explain something to you. Someone said you were out here sleeping and so we all came to observe and, and what we saw just totally changed our thoughts. When we saw your feet that were blistered and bloody, we realized that this was a holy man and that we were evil to reject you. We were sorry for what we did and we want to hear this message you have to tell us. See, what this evangelist in India did was this. He filled up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. You see, he walked into that village and he told them about Jesus Christ dying on the cross, some distant man who lived thousands of years before in some distant part of the world that they had never been to and they never understood. And they immediately rejected him and sent them out. But when they saw his suffering, suddenly it filled up something that was lacking in them. And that is what Paul is saying here. He says, I am filling up. I am for these people filling up what is lacking. And so, and so our responsibilities do that. And so the call that God has given us is great. And that is, we are to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Why? For the sake of the body, the church. Secondly, I want to look at what is the, the message of service. The message of service really is simple. In verse 25, uh, Paul continues, he says, uh, talking about the church, and he says, of which I became a minister. Now he, he mentioned this in verse 23. He called himself a minister in verse 23, and I talked about that last week. That idea of minister is not reserved for clergy or, or, or ministers in the sense that we think of this is, This is people who are, are serving God. This is us, servants of God. He says, I I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. In other words, this is not his ministry. It's God's ministry that God gave him to do. What did he say it was at the end of that verse? To make the word of God fully known. Though not all of us here are called to preach, all of us are called to be servants of the gospel. All of us are called to be people who take this task very seriously of making the word of God known. But what was the specific message? What was it that they were called? Well, Paul calls it, if you continue reading in verse 26, he calls it the mystery, the mystery hidden from ages and generation, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Now, what is the mystery? Now, there are many things in this world that are a mystery to me. Uh, we look out in the world, and, you know, I, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, there, there are things that God has made and, and that don't seem to line up. Let me, let me give you an example, okay? Uh, you think about a cheetah. A cheetah is a, is a beautiful creature, it runs with great speed, great power, uh, it, it looks beautiful, and, and you, you can think, yeah, that's a creation of God, but then think about, at the same time, a, a sloth. <laughs> God, why'd you make that thing? The same creator created both, and that's a mystery to me. Oh, here's another one, this is a mystery to me, how come Notre Dame football can never win the big game? That's a mystery to me. Now, those of you that are Ohio State fans and Michigan fans and whatever else, don't come trying to tell me why afterwards, okay? I don't want to hear your side. It's just a mystery. As a Notre Dame fan, why can they never win the big one? Or maybe for some of you guys out there, the mystery is your wife. (laughs) You have tried and you can't figure it out. That's not what he's talking about here. See, because the greatest mystery is how could humans ever be right with God? He says in this passage, this is a mystery that was was hidden from ages and generations and and, and it perplexed all of the Old Testament saints of of what God was doing and what God was going to do. I mean, mean Moses' Moses' job, what was Moses' job? To lead the people and in the process that Moses gave the people the Ten Commandments and all along Moses knew that the Ten Commandments could never break or never fix a broken heart. And it was a mystery to him. David. David was a man that God called a man after God's own heart, yet David knew that his heart was sinful. Isaiah. Isaiah was the guy who saw a vision and after seeing this vision he said, God, I'll go do what you want me to do. And yet he knew that he and the people on earth all had unclean lips. But notice the verse tells us here in verse 27 this, this mystery. And this mystery of the ages is so profound and yet so simple. The mystery, as we see in other places, refers to the church. But, but uh, the ramifications that follow with that specifically, though, he tells us here this mystery. Look again at verse 27. He says, the mystery which is Christ in you. The entire uh, summation of Christian faith can be summed up in those last seven words of that verse 27. In Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in all of his deity dwells with me. That's the mystery. One of the most remarkable thoughts of Christian doctrine is that Christ, that God that is holy, that can never be in the presence of sin, dwells with us. Look what it says in in John, and these, uh, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. How could God love us that much? I think about in my own life, and I think back to when I was younger, and I think, how could God take a young, timid, selfish teenager with a hard heart and a corrupt mind and use him for anything good? It's Christ in me. How can a man full of violence and hatred transform into a man who is gentle and loving? It's Christ in him. How can a marriage that is dead walk again as a testimony of grace? It's Christ in them. How can a woman who's marred by years and years of sexual abuse have grace to forgive? It's Christ in her. See, the mystery of the church and the message that we have to go out into the world is not us. It's not how profound we are. It's not what we're the, the cool programs we're doing. It's Christ in you. And that's what Paul says is this mystery. It's Christ. And he says, not only that, but this, this mystery of Christ in you is the, what? the hope of glory. Undoubtedly, he's talking there about the resurrection hope. That one day, Jesus Christ will come again, and he will take us, and, and we will resurrect to new life. And so the message that we have is not profound and huge and massive. It's simple. Christ in you. Thirdly, the goal. The goal of service is maturity. Go on and look at verse 27. Excuse me, verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. First of all, our, our, our goal is to present every person mature in Christ. That was Paul's goal. That should be our goal. That in every relationship we have, that we are building people up so that they will be mature in Christ. Howard Hendricks, uh, which was a, a professor and an author, he said this, uh, you, you cannot impart what you do not possess. If you're not making an effort to grow in Christ, then you cannot help someone else in that process of growth. But the Lord wants all of His disciples, every one of us. If you're here today and you are a Christian, then you are a disciple of God. He wants every one of us to help in the cause of making others disciples. That's the heart of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not just about uh, missions work. The Great Commission is about each and every single person that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ of, of going and making disciples. And Paul even says it this way. He says, as you go and make disciples, he, says, he, sa- he said to them, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. And that should be your same goal. And sometimes we read that and we think, how arrogant of Paul. No, that's, that's what God wants us to do. That's the idea of disciple making. You should be going to people and saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's the disciple making process and you think that's intimidating. That is terrifying. I don't feel adequate to help others grow in Christ. I don't feel I could ever do that. I don't think there would ever be a point in my life when I could tell others to imitate me as I imitate Christ. But I've got news for you. People are imitating you. If you are living for God, if you are in a good example, then people are imitating you to do the right thing. Or if you're being a bad example, they're still imitating you. And our call is, as believers is to take this simple message that, that my life is only different because of Christ in me and then go and live that in such a way that we can present others as mature in Christ. And we are to be doing that. If you've only been a Christian for a month, you can still impart the gospel that changed your life to someone who doesn't yet know the Savior but I think in here, that doesn't apply the same way. I think most of you here, you've been saved for quite a while. Some of you have been saved for 50, 60, 70 years. And you've got 50, 60, 70 years of experience with the Lord that a newer believer does not have, that an unsaved person does not have. So wherever you are in the process, whether it's been a month or it's been 70 years, wherever you are in that process, God can use you to help others grow to maturity and God wants to use you to help others grow in maturity. But to do that, you've got to be growing in maturity yourself. You've got to be walking with the Lord each day. You cannot impart what you do not possess. But secondly, not only are, are, are we to uh, help others to grow, but secondly, we, uh, to present everyone mature in Christ, we must proclaim Christ. Notice what he says in verse 28 there. He starts off, him we proclaim. Who's this him? It's referring back to Christ in you. So him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. There's a few aspects I want to look at about this proclaiming Christ. First of all, proclaiming Christ is the work of all believers. Maybe you're saying, hey, that word proclaiming, that sounds like a preaching type word. (laughs) I'm not a preacher, so I'm good, right? No, actually, that's not the idea. There is a place for trained men who devote themselves to preaching. Uh, there is a time for that. There is uh, there is uh, opportunities for that, but it's it's also true that the Bible tells us. Just a couple weeks ago, we looked in Peter, and it says that you are a royal priesthood. Remember that passage? It's the idea there that you you are a priest, and you have a ministry to fulfill. And it's not just my ministry. It's not just Pastor Nate or Pastor Will's ministry or the deacon's ministry or the Sunday school teachers. It's all of our responsibilities to fulfill this ministry God has called us to do. And so what is this ministry? He says here, uh, him we proclaim. Proclaim. That word is an interesting one. It's one to announce as a herald or a messenger. In, In the days before mass communication, if a king wanted to get his message to his people, he sent out a herald who would proclaim. And as you would proclaim, he would say, thus says... Says the king. The herald was not free. Okay, it's not like our newspapers today. Okay, he was not free to add his own uh, opinion. Here's the news. I want to tell it to you. This is from the king. He had to speak uh, the the message of the king faithfully. As such, there was a note of authority when, uh, when he would go out. And the same thing is true to us as pro- proclaimers today, as heralds today of God. Uh, we have that authority to go out and tell people that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. He is the psalm and substance of the Christian life. He must be at the center of everything. But it is our responsibility to go now, all of us in this room have different ways we go and different ways we impact. Okay, I get up here every week and preach. None of you do. But you all have an impact that I can't have. Kent Hughes, who is an author, and talks about how uh, our life should impact others. He told a story about a, a woman he met when he was uh, uh, in Africa on a mission trip. This woman was 70 years old, she was blind, she was uneducated, and she got saved. She was filled with gratitude for her Savior, and she wanted to do something for Christ. And so she went to the missionary, and she took to the missionary her French Bible. Reminder, she's blind. She went to the missionary, and she said to him, Can you do something for me? Can you take my Bible, my French Bible, and underline John 3.16 in red? The missionary said, I don't, okay, I don't know why, but I'll do this. And she, so he underlined it in red, and, and, he, and he watched her. And she took that Bible, and she went, and across the street from her house was a, was a boys' school. And every day after school, she would go outside, and she would sit there outside of the school, and as the boys would come out, she would call out to them. She would say, hey, can any of you read French. They were thrilled because they were learning French as students, and and so they would come over to her and they would say, yes, we can read French, and she would open up her Bible and she would say, please read the passage underlined in red. And they would read it, and then she would say, do you know what this means? And they would say no, and then she would begin to proclaim Christ. And Kent Hughes goes on to say that that it was recalled after she died that the number of lives that she impacted, in fact, so much so that they said they counted up, there were 24 young men who are now preachers because of her. And yet we somehow think, well, I, I don't know what I could do. An uneducated blind woman found a way. We must understand that this job of proclamation, this job of proclaiming Christ is the job for all of God's people. But secondly, proclaiming Christ means we do not proclaim human wisdom. Our message centers on the work of Christ. We'll talk about that more in a minute. It centers on the the work of Christ as as revealed in the the Bible. And we should never veer from that to, to, to our own message or supplement it or mix it with worldly wisdom somehow. It should be Christ's. In Christ alone. And that's the third one here. They kind of blend together. But proclaiming uh, Christ centers on the person and work of Christ. I want to read to a passage. I don't have it on the screen, so listen carefully. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, hear what, hear what Paul says. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For the Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we... Preach Christ crucified. Our message should always re- re- revolve around that idea of Christ crucified. I think too often our message becomes so many other things. See, our message should not be that we're defending creation over evolution, although that's good. Our message should not be just about, uh, about trying to, to uh, abolish Uh, abortion although that's good our message should not be about whether we have the right to carry guns our message should be Christ crucified all those other things will fall into place Paul said I I, I didn't go out with worldly wisdom I, I didn't go out with a desire to debate in fact I went out in the foolishness of my own way but I preached Christ. And we have a responsibility to go preach Christ. You know, it's very easy to go, to, go out into your neighborhood and your neighbor comes over and starts debating with you politics or this or that or the other thing, and you know what the most important message they may need to know? Christ. Not who you voted for in the last election. They need to know that you preach Christ. And finally, proclaiming Christ requires both admonishing and teaching. Notice in the passage again in verse 28, he says, We proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone. Now, I want you to notice that three times Paul emphasizes every man. I think that the importance there is that, is that we need to uh, understand that this is, this is a message to the world. This is a message to everyone we come in contact with. I think the reason he emphasized this, is we've been talking through Colossians, was uh, that there was false teachers. And one of the areas the false teachers were impacting in Colossians is they were, they were talking about this, this idea that there was exclusivity in teaching and that there, the, there was uh, knowledge that was there for general people, but there was, there was this knowledge that was for the elite I think, I think Paul's trying to combat that by saying, no, every person, every type of person, everywhere you go, needs Christ. But then he uses these two words. He says, warning and teaching. Warning has a nuance there of admonishing or correcting someone who is in sin or in error. Now not everyone needs admonishing, the Bible talks about that, but some do, and it's the, it's the work of, uh, of every believer to admonish in love, whether it's another Christian who is making a mistake, or, or it's an unsaved person who we need to admonish in the Word. But then he says teaching, that's the positive side of imparting in truth. Now some have the gift of teaching publicly, but every believer has, has a teaching role in some capacity. In fact, the Bible talks about that. It says, parents, you must teach your children. It talks about older women teaching the younger. Now, everyone here has someone younger than them. So everyone here has the responsibility to do that. More mature believers should be teaching younger believers, discipling. Over and over again, we see this idea. And it's, it's not just going out and, and jumping in the world and saying, hey, I want to tell you you're a sinner and you're lost and you're going to hell. But no, it's teaching, it's spending time. We need to continue to do that. But I, with, in closing, I want to remind you of something here, and that is this the work of service is a struggle. Notice how Paul ends this in verse 29. For this, in other words, he's saying, for this purpose, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. There's a, there's a paradox and a balance in this verse. And I don't know if you notice that. Paul labors and strives and works and does everything he possibly can. But at the end of the verse he says, uh, but it's according to God's power who works mightily in me. And there's there's that balance. And I think sometimes, if we're not careful, we get out of balance. And and sometimes people go to either extreme. Some some will kick back and say, hey, let go and let God. I, I know that saying's used, and I'm not discounting the, the reason sometimes it's used, but... Uh, uh, we don't get too worked up about reaching others or discipling young people because God will do the work and, and we don't have to do that. And, and those type of people don't commit to teaching Sunday school because someone else can and God will bring around the right person or, or working in the youth group or calling on church visitors or, or getting plugged into a growth group or being involved in Sunday school. I mean, we, don't, we don't need to do that because uh, it's, uh, someone else will. To put it nicely, they're laid back in their faith. To put it bluntly, they're they're lazy when it comes to working for the Lord. That's a person who says, hey, God's at work. And he is. Don't get me wrong. That's what Paul says. But if you notice, Paul started with this. For this reason I toil. Struggling. Because on the other hand, you have those people who who go to that other extreme and they, they get burnt out because they're, they're laboring and they're striving, but not according to the power of God, but it's according to their own work. And it's almost sometimes a badge of honor. You've probably met people like this. It's like a badge of honor they put on. They go, hey, I've suffered. But often these people, they work so hard, they're trying to earn God's favor rather than working through the grace and power of God. And I think that if we are burned out, it's because we're laboring in our own power, not in God's. These words, these words here, toil and 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 uh, strugg- uh, toil and struggling are interesting. Uh, they're, they're words. There, first of all, the, the struggling one is a, is word used of an athlete who exerts all his strength to defeat the enemy, and it's 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 a you see a athlete at the end of a uh, of a game or a, a match or, or whatever it is, and he's just exhausted. And Paul says, I I work, I toil. But I realize that at the end of the day, even though I have to work and toil, it is God who powerfully works within me. Let me ask you a couple questions. First of all, are you willing to suffer for the work of God? I imagine there are many in this room who say yes. I also imagine there are some in this room who say no. I don't want to do that. God calls all of us to be willing. Oh, even more than that. If we are godly, we will suffer for him. second question I want to ask you is, are you, are you proclaiming Christ in me to the world around you? There are so many messages. Don't get lost in those messages because the one that matters is Christ in me. And finally, are you on, are you on the verge of burnout? It is only through power of God that we continue. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for you. God, it is clear in your word from the pages of this text that we Read from every week that we hold to, that many in this room read every day. It is it is evident from these pages of scripture that we just read and, and many others that your word tells us that our 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 happiness is not wrapped up in the joys of earth. We know that we can enjoy earth because you created it, but that that is not where it's wrapped up. It's 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 the eternal glory that we're pursuing. And Lord, it's hard for us. As earthly people, it is hard for us to toil, to struggle in this life. Lord, we are, we are temporal people. And we look and we, we see it seems like our life is long and hard at times and sometimes we want to give up and sometimes we want to turn in the towel. Lord, we pray that your power will be evident in our lives. God, I pray that you will help us to be people who are willing to suffer, be people who are are expecting suffering, but with the understanding that the reward is your glory. Lord, I pray that you'll be with us if we're if there are people here who are not they're not proclaiming Christ in them. Lord, I pray that they will be passionate and desirous to do so. Lord, I pray that you'll work and guide in our hearts today as we leave. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.